Well, this morning we come to the conclusion of the book of Kings. Uh, you can find the book of Kings. Actually, the passage will be at in 2 Kings 23 to the end, 2 Kings 25. That's on page 330 of the Bibles that are in front of you. Uh, last fall we began this book, and so if you're coming here today, you should know you're kind of strolling in on the final 30 minutes of a movie, which is great. So you get to see the conclusion. Hopefully you'll want to go back and watch the rest of the movie as it begins. But next week we'll do a kind of summary of the book as a whole, then we'll have Easter, consider the Resurrection Day. But it's important for us to remember as we set out on these final pages, it's important to remember that when the God-inspired author began writing this book of Kings, when he began writing it at the very beginning, he knew what he was going to write about today. Keep that in mind. He was well aware of that. He already knew about all of these terrible events that we'll read about today, which is why he designed the book the way that he did. He carefully noted all of the stability and all of the prosperity. He noted all of that, all of the prosperity, all of the blessings. He noted all of that in the earlier chapters. And then he slowly and very carefully notes the general slide down towards oblivion, which we'll consider this morning. We're in today in the conclusion of the book we read of the exact opposite of what we read at the beginning. We read the opposite of blessing, the opposite of stability, the opposite of prosperity. And so the, the author here is an honest and a careful historian, but you need to know he was a theological historian. He did more than the new newspaper that we read every morning. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the author did something, friends, that the cable news can never do. The author understood God's perspective and gave us not only what happened, but here in Kings, he tells us why it happened the way that it did. And the reason God ordained this book was so that you and I might learn from the mistakes of the kings of Judah and of Israel, while at the same time, this book is teaching us to hope in the answer to that Davidic covenant, teaching us to hope in Christ. That was very conscious in the mind of the author. He wrote that we would learn to hope in Christ, the true and forever king. So I'll go ahead and warn you before we jump into this book, it's a sad ending, It's a very sad ending. And yet if we would but listen this morning, listen to its message, we would save ourselves from so much heartache. Some of you this morning, you will listen. Some of you this morning, you will not listen. So I wonder which group will you be in? Will you heed the warnings of kings? Or will you barely pay attention and go on conforming to the patterns of destructive worship that are around us here in 21st century Washington, D.C.? Friends, you are either one or the other. You're in one of those camps. And so it's been my prayer this week that we would be uh, sobered by the words here in this passage. We read in the book of Lamentations that was written just about the same time as these events. We read that the prophet Jeremiah writes in Lamentations 1.9, referencing this fall, her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible and she has no comfort. So Restoration Church visitors, my non-Christian friends, listen and take thought of your future. That you might not have a terrible fall and have no comforter as Judah did. That's the call this morning. Big idea, very simple. Sin or idolatry takes you places you never want to go. And yet hope rises. Sin or idolatry takes you places you never want to go, and yet hope rises. So what I'll do is I'll just walk us right through the story of the book, the conclusion of the book of Kings, then I'll come back and do some application at the end. 
And when we left off last week, we finished with that amazing reformation of King Josiah. This brother was a model, if you remember, of repentance. This was an amazing man. Josiah, King Josiah, King of Judah. Remember the two, the 12 tribes have split up. There's the 10 that has now been exiled by this point of the book. The other two are still here, Judah. Right? So this brother, King Josiah of Judah, he hears the word of the Lord. He then cleans out Judah in parts of Israel, emptying out the temple complex and worship centers all over the regions like a moving company would go into a hoarder's house and pull it out. All of the stuff. He burns all of the idols. He then ships their ashes to where those idol centers came from. Those idols came from. And Josiah amazingly did it all knowing that because of the wickedness of the predecessor, King Manasseh, he did all of this. Josiah did all of this knowing that all of this reform he was going to bring would not last. Isn't that amazing? That's how you know someone is truly repentant. That even when they know It will not be a rosy future. Still, they do what is right. And that's what Josiah did. They repent and they walk in repentance for the glory of the Lord. And what we're going to see, guys, after that amazing reform from Josiah, it's going to be just over 22 years before it all falls apart. Not even that long, 22 years. All of Judah, her kings, her city, including the temple, will be completely destroyed because they were unwilling to do as Josiah did. And follow the Lord by following his word. Instead, the Judaites and all of those with him, they were determined to go their own way. They were determined to conform to the worship of the patterns of the worship around them. And of course, it took them then to places that they never wanted to go. So picking up here in our story at the end of 2 Kings chapter 23, you can look there in verse 31. After Josiah dies, King Jehoahaz comes to power. We learn in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 31, he reigns only three months in Jerusalem. We learn that he does what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. And Pharaoh Necho, who was the Egyptian leader, he comes in, puts this guy, Jehoahaz, in handcuffs, carries him off to a town called Riblah so that he wouldn't rule in Jerusalem. We read in verse 34 there, he eventually is taken to Egypt where he dies. And then Necho puts a tax on the land of promise. And he also, Nico, puts uh, a king, another son of Josiah, puts him up into power. A guy by the name of Eliakim, whose name is changed to Jehoiakim. And as I've said before, guys, don't try to remember all the names of these kings, especially these. They sound so similar. But nevertheless, uh, Nico puts up this uh, son of Josiah, Jehoiakim, into power. Jehoiakim gave gold and silver and other means of wealth as a tax to the now ruling Egyptians of the region there in Judah. And yet up to this point, God's people, they're still living in the land, and a son of David is ruling, albeit in a wicked manner, because Jehoiakim was an evil man. Jehoiakim is 25 years old when he begins his campaign as king. In verse 37, we learn he is evil, again, like so many other, other kings from both Israel and Judah. And it is during his reign that Babylon begins to flex their muscle more than Egypt. Take a look at 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 1. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. 
for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Friends, these are the kinds of birthing pains that are going to lead to the exile. And I want you to notice these bands that are coming up against Judah. Who's sending them? Look at verse 2. Who's sending these bands? The Lord is sending them. Again, had we been listening to NBC Jerusalem that morning, they would have properly noted all the people that were coming. They would have properly noted that they were Chaldeans, but they would not have reported that the bands were coming against them because of the Lord. Yet another reminder of why the Bible, friends, is so important to us. It gives us not only history, but it gives us theological history in order that we might learn. And here we learn not only that the Lord sent these bands, but importantly, we learn in that passage, we learn why they're coming as forms of judgment. They're coming as forms of judgment in fulfillment of the word of the Lord for the sins of Manasseh, as well as that innocent blood that Manasseh spilled. Reminding us again, friends, that every sin will be dealt with. Every sin will be dealt with. Some people think Hitler got off easy by killing himself before the Russians and the Americans got to him. But we as Christians know that he will have to answer for all of his sin. So will we all. Like Judah, we all will have to answer for our sin. And when we learn in verse 6, we learn that Jehoiakim dies. And then we learn the king of Egypt stays put in his own part of the world. Uh, as the stronger armies of Babylon now again are flexing their muscle, they begin to kind of run the show there in the region of Judah. Verse 8, Jehoiakim comes to power uh, at the age of 18. You see that in verse 8. He, he reigns in Jerusalem for three months, and he does evil. And I want you guys to underline those words. He reigns in three months in Jerusalem. That's significant because, as we will see, Jehoiakim, he gets exiled, but he doesn't get executed. And apparently, he's still seen as king. That will be more clear as we get to the end of the book. But the reason why it says three months in Jerusalem is because the exile of Judah and Jerusalem occurs on Jehoiakim's watch. Take a look at verse 10. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem. And the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord which Solomon, king of Israel, had made, as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiakim to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land, he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Matani, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. And friends, if this is not sad enough, nine years goes by and there's enough of a contingent people still left there in Jerusalem, nine years after, 
still enough people left there that this now King Zedekiah, he decides to strangely lead a revolt against Babylon. And of course, that goes terrible. Babylon then surrounds Jerusalem, laid siege to it. This famine comes and sets in. It's severe, but Zedekiah and some of his army decide they're going to try to break out of this siege. And you can read of that in chapter 25, verse 4. They begin to break out. But in verse 5, we see this king and some of his army, they break out from that siege. And we read that the army of the Chaldeans pursues the king and takes him down of all places on the plains of Jericho. Now, for some of you that know, that should sound a bit familiar to you. Jericho. Jericho was the first city Joshua encountered after entering into the land years before for the very first time. In other words, the king of Judah here at the end is cut down at the front door of the place where they first came in. We read in verse 7 of the terrible practices of Babylon. You look there in chapter 25, verse 7, they take the king, Zedekiah, and they slaughter his kids right before his eyes, and then they gouge out his eyes. And as awful as this is, friends, we look back in chapter 24, verse 19, and we are reminded that Zedekiah is an evil king. And not only that, but we read even more commentary on this king, Zedekiah, in the book of Jeremiah, a contemporary of Zedekiah. Where we learn in the book of Jeremiah that Jeremiah, that Zedekiah comes to Jeremiah amidst this siege before he breaks out and asks what he should do. We read about that in Jeremiah chapter 38. And Jeremiah advises King Zedekiah to turn himself in and not only will his life be spared, but also the temple, that complex will be spared and everything else will be spared if they would just turn themselves in. But if they don't, then things will go terrible. And so Zedekiah, true to his nature of being an evil king, does not follow the counsel of the Lord's word, and this is what you get. He rejects Jeremiah's counsel, tries to go his own way, and just as it was said of Jeremiah, so it happens. Just a couple more incidents that are shared with us in the final days of Judah and Jerusalem as we know it. And what may have been the saddest, most illustrative moment of all, we read of the king of Babylon's bodyguard, this dude by the name of Nebuzaradan. He comes in, He shows up to Jerusalem, and we read in chapter 25, verse 9, this. Nebuchadnezzar showed up, and he burned the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city, and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, and the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. This, of course, this work here that we're reading about, this is the work that uh, Ezra and Nehemiah will come years later and clean up and rebuild. They illustrate, though, at this point, this burning down, this destructing of the walls of the temple of the king's house, they illustrate the state of the covenant between God and his people. What began with so much peace and security, so much wealth and glory as the presence of God descended upon the temple filled with gold and silver and bronze, now ends with the king's house, the temple, and the walls surrounding Jerusalem burned to the ground and the people now exiled once again east of Eden to Babylon. Verses 13 to 17 read like an inventory of 1 Kings 7. 
But instead of setting up this glorious temple for God, it now reads as spoil that is cut up and carried off to Babylon. In verses 18 to 21, the bodyguard then rounds up some chief priests that are left around, some other temple workers, in addition to some men who try to draw up some support to resist Babylon again. And this guy takes them, these priests, these insurrectionists, as it were, and they take them out to Riblah, where the king of Babylon has them put to death. The final piece is there in chapter 25, verses 22 to 26, where the king of Babylon appoints a Jewish man by the name of Gedaliah, who, by the way, is the son of the guys that went and spoke to Huldah, if you remember from her last week. Gedaliah is placed as a kind of governor for whatever small, tiny remnant is left there in the city of Jerusalem. He thinks everything's going to be fine as long as they just obey the Babylonians. Just listen, obey the Babylonians, things are going to go fine. And so the other Jews, though, up and kill Gedaliah. So now, not only do we have people threatening and killing and persecuting and burning down and exiling the people of God, now they have the people of God killing themselves. And it is with that that we read in verse 26 that all the people remaining, right after Gedaliah is killed, Look at verse 26. All the people remaining, that little tiny remnant, when they see that Gedaliah is killed, the remaining people up and flee to, of all places, Egypt. Meaning, not only has the king been cut down at the same place that Joshua came in centuries before, and not only is the city of Jerusalem leveled, and not only are the people exiled outside the land, and not only are the temple and the king's house and the walls burned to the ground, And not only are all those costly materials taken away, what people were left in Judah flee back to where they came from, Egypt, where God had delivered them centuries before. It's as though all of this, the story of Israel, it's as though none of it even happened. And so this was the scene of Jeremiah's opening words in Lamentations. And beloved, I would try to get you to use your biblical imaginations for these words. Try and imagine Jeremiah standing, looking at the now desolate, broken now, burned down city, writing these words. Lamentations chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. Friends, this has to be one of the saddest endings of a book known to man, knowing how it began. Beloved, do you remember last fall, last September, You remember last September when we began how Solomon came to power. David died, remember that. 
Solomon came to power. Here we have a son of David standing to inherit the promises of the Lord. Do you remember, significant now, do you remember how Solomon had rest on every side? Do you remember how he asked for wisdom to discern good from evil? Remember how he talked about those two prostitutes and he understood how to save the child and bring about the rightful mother? Do you remember that wisdom was so great that nations came into Solomon's court in order to learn from it. Do you remember how they gathered wood from Hiram and gathered all of that gold and silver? Do you remember how abundant it all was? And now that cedar is burned and the gold and the silver are sitting in Egypt and Babylon as spoil. And do you remember, beloved, how when the ark of the Lord was brought into the temple in 1 Kings 8, how that cloud of glory descended And fell upon that place such that the priests couldn't even stand to do their work. It was so powerful. And yet now, priests are killed. And as the prophet Ezekiel documents, the glory of the Lord has departed from the temple. The only thing left in the land is charred out buildings and the memory of what could have been. This, friends, is the ending of Kings. And we ask why? Why? Why did it end this way? Why did it turn out this way? And then secondly, why did the Lord preserve the story in this way for us? That first question, of course, is a little easy to answer. We've been answering it now for months as to why things turned out this way. If you're just flip back way back to 1 Kings chapter 6, just before Solomon began building the temple that would eventually be burned down by the Babylonians, the word of the Lord came to Solomon, and it said in 1 Kings 6, 11 to 13, Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you which I spoke to David, your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people. Simply put, they didn't do that. That's why it turned out the way that it did. The Lord says, I'll marry you. Here's how the marriage is going to go and be fruitful and beautiful. And yet they didn't give themselves to the Lord in that marriage as such. They chose to go after other gods. To use the language of the prophets themselves, they hoard themselves out to other gods. To use the language of Romans 12 in the New Testament, they conformed to the patterns of the world around them. They loved other things and they loved other gods more than they loved the one true and living God. The Lord, of course, was patient. We've seen, haven't we? The Lord was so patient with them for centuries. He showed mercy upon mercy. The second they showed just a hair of repentance, the Lord showed them so much grace and mercy. We saw that in Ahab. But things got so bad that the Lord had to show justice. He had to bring about justice in order to preserve his holy name. And he used the instrument of the Assyrians, the Egyptians, the Babylonians to execute that justice. Eventually, he would execute even his own justice on those Assyrians and Babylonians for their own wickedness. And so that's the easy question of why things turned out the way that they did. It explains why things turned out like that. They just didn't love God, but instead they conformed to the patterns of worship around them. But we ask that second question. Well, then why is this preserved for us? What's this here for? It's the word of God. Why why did the Lord want this preserved for us? Well, here's the point. This is our point of application. He wrote this and he preserved it so that you and I would wake up. We would wake up. 
You remember Jeremiah's description of that charred out empty Judah? Lamentations 1.9, her uncleanness was in her skirts. Her uncleanness was inside them. And she took no thought of her future. Therefore, the fall is terrible and she has no comfort. They didn't remember that the Lord had delivered them from slavery in the past and they didn't consider where they were headed based off of their decision-making, based off of their worship. And because they didn't think about their future, where they were headed, their fall was terrible. No comfort. Now, some of us need a wake-up call this morning. All of us do at some level. That's why the Lord has graciously given us this book to make us slow down and give thought to our futures so that our fall won't be terrible. Kings has taught us that sin and idolatry never takes you places you really want to go. Guys, the the residents of Judah never wanted to go to Babylon, but they wound up there. Even though they despised the Lord, they never wanted to see the temple burn down, and yet it was. They certainly didn't want the walls of their city burned down, but they were. Sin takes us places we never want to go. And normally it takes us there by small, indiscernible compromises. It was a slow fade for Judah. So slow that it seemed unnoticeable until, of course, it wasn't. Have you given thought to your future, beloved, based off of the decisions you've made in the past six months or a year? Or two years. Where are you headed? To my non-Christian friends, have you, uh, have you, with uncleanness from within, have you given thought to your future and the possible terrible fall that is in front of you? By giving thought to your future, you'll know, friend, where you're destined to wind up. But the problem is, so many of us are so entwined in the day-to-day, so distracted maybe by our devices or other things, that we haven't slowed down long enough to consider where we're going, who we're becoming, based off of the decisions, based off of our own worship in the past, again, six months or a year or two or three years. And if we do consider the future, it's often, isn't it, related to our careers, to our travel schedule, to our kids' schedule. Rarely do we even slow down to evaluate, how am I going to wind up 10 years from now based off of how I'm loving and living? And that's what Judah and Jerusalem did not do, says Jeremiah. They stopped listening and they started conforming to the worship around them. I mentioned in a previous sermon that idols can typically be traced back by evaluating three things. By evaluating what we get anxious about, by evaluating what we get angry about, and by evaluating what we are afraid of. I've shared before that because I was there when my dad died and had a heart attack at the age of 50, just a couple years from my age right now, that I can sometimes be afraid of my physical heart stopping. That's one of my fears. And so my idol, as a result of that, is kind of self-control. I, I, I think that I can somehow control my own life. I, I think I can control me in my health and my life. And so now the idolatry for me comes, the, the worship, the taxonomy of that idolatry comes when I, all right, if I just eat right, if I just exercise enough, and I go to the doctor, uh, right, that, this, that's how I'm going to kind of control all of this. 
keep it in my own hand. And that way, uh, that way, the way this fear then begins to move into the realm of idolatry, because those things are good things, right? You should be doing those three things, by the way. But those things move into the realm of idolatry when I take those good pieces of wisdom for help as a way of controlling my body. My idol is my own control of my own life, my own physical life. And so I can so easily stop relying on the Lord. And I subversively start relying on those wise pieces of advice because I think I can control it. And if I'm not careful, I can lose all trust in the Lord and place all trust in my own ability to bring about the desired result of heart health. But if I can give enough thought to the uncleanness in myself and where I'm going with the idol of control, that is, the more that I think of my future, if I keep doing that, if I keep giving in to me trying to, or if I do these three things, then I'm going to be able to live to be 75, 78, 80. If I keep doing that, you understand what's going to happen to me by the time I'm 50s, by the time I'm 60, 70, 80, 90? You know what's going to happen to me? I'm going to be full of fear. I'm going to be full of paranoia. I'm going to be full of anxiety. I'm going to be full of depression. And I'm going to have tons of doubt about God if I'm not careful. So it's because I slow down and think, all right, Nathan, if you don't do that stuff, but you have to trust in the Lord. He numbers your days. You're not sovereign. The more I can rest and then I can age and I'll die with a smile on my face, whether that's now or 30 years from now. Resting peacefully. Not giving in to that idol of control. And that little exercise then helps me to repent of, again, any attempts to control and place my life in the hands of the sovereign Lord. I've learned to memorize and meditate on passages like uh, Psalm 73, verse 26, that says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but the Lord is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I've meditated on that verse so many times. My flesh and my heart may fail. But the Lord is the strength of my heart and my portion. There's me trying to put off the idol and put on the Lord. That gives me peace because it keeps me on that path, my future path to him in heaven. Not down the path of self-destructiveness that leads to anxiety, doubt, dismay, and paranoia. That's just one example in my life of a subtle idol. But there are others here this morning that are like that or far more dangerous. You. What's that idol for you? Or what are those idols? There are some here this morning that are so focused on marriage that you're willing to make compromises on a potential spouse's relationship to Christ just to be married. There are some here this morning that are so focused on career advancement that you've set up a schedule to be entirely dictated by career advancement such that even when you're not there at work, you think about it, crowding out as a result, crowding out prayer, crowding out discipleship, crowding out meditation on the good promises of God. There are others here so focused on leisure that you've planned out your summer to the point that you've never considered how that summer away will thin out meaningful relationships in the life of the church. There are still others here that are so controlled by sexual desire that you're unwilling to lose that phone, unwilling to ask a fellow brother and sister to hold you accountable on a weekly basis to put off and put on the glories of Christ. There are even more that are guided by the future thought of an American dream that you've not considered for a moment that those things, your square footage, will never satisfy. 
as we've said all along in this series, right? We're not tempted by Baal. We're not tempted by Asherah. We're not tempted by Moloch, right? In some ways, it was a little easier for them. It was much more apparent, much more clear. Here in our own context, the gods that are around us are more subtle and they're harder to detect as illustrative by that little example I gave. See, the, the gods that are around us are happy to have you love Jesus and use the church. In so far as you'll use Jesus, you'll use the Bible, you'll use the church to serve you. They're happy to let that happen. The God of self, the God of me, that is the God that is around us. That's the temptation here in 2023, Washington, D.C. The steady diet of consumerism, thinking everyone and everything exists to serve my desires. This is often our temptation. This is often our idolatry that is around us. Far more subtle and, again, far more insidious, but equally destructive. It's subtle and insidious because focusing on ourselves is not all wrong. Matter of fact, I think Scripture even would teach us that we should in some ways focus on ourselves, right? Philippians 2.4, look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. So we ought to be. Love others as you love yourself. There's this assumption. You ought to be loving yourself in some capacity. So it is easy to think that we're not serving idols, especially when the idol of individualism is so normal around us. Thus, it's subtle and subversive temptations. The call from kings is to consider, guys, any uncleanness that is bound up in our individualism or consumerism. Our thought is to think about those individualistic mindsets or lifestyles such that we would then ramp it forward 10, 20, 30 years and see our future if we're not careful. So that you and I and we as a church won't have terrible falls and no comforter as Judah did. The greatest of which, of course, is eternal judgment away from the presence of the Lord. That is why, that is what the Judah eventually experienced, right? The exile to Babylon was nothing in comparison to the exile from the heavenly Jerusalem. And so it is for us. The exile from the church of Christ is nothing compared to the exile from God in heaven into hell. And yet that is the destiny for all those who find themselves unwilling to do as Josiah did and not just manage sin and idolatry, but destroy it. Hell is the destiny of unrepentant sinners who don't flee to Christ. So that, and this is the key, we not only flee from those idols, we flee to Christ. Both of those are important, right? We fight so that we might give thought to our future with Christ. It's not just getting away from idols. It's getting to Jesus. And guys, I've been a Christian long enough to know that people's lives turn out a lot like Jerusalem. Charred out and emptied on the inside. I've watched it. I've seen it. I've seen churches fall apart because they tried to be more relevant to their own context more than they were relevant to the context of heaven. I've seen marriages disintegrate. I've seen individual men and women abandon their faith because they didn't give thought to their uncleanness and their future. And they did. They had terrible faults and no comfort because they didn't give thought to their future. And so God's God is screaming from these passages, screaming at us, wake up. Where are you going? Are you paying attention 
to the worship around you and how it's working its way in. Give thought to your uncleanness. Give thought to your idolatry. Give thought to their future. Where are you going based off of your recent decision making? Will you, will your marriages, your families, your church family, will these things be charred out and empty five, ten years from now based off of the way you've been conforming to the patterns around you? Or will it be as God intended? Will it be because of your faithful, personal repentance and life and the life of God's people is conforming to the full and the deep and abiding patterns of Christ? Surrounded by his people, surrounded by his promises, surrounded by a future that is bright and beautiful with Christ. Which will it be? This is the question that is being asked of us as we finish off this book. Where are you and where are we going? Let it never be said of us that we had a terrible fall because we didn't consider that this book is teaching us to discipline ourselves for godliness. Beloved, don't drift into exile. And if you're not trusting in Christ, then today is the day of salvation. Die to self. It'll never complete you. Christ will. You're made for Him to worship and enjoy Him. If you don't, then you too will die in exile, apart from Him in hell. And I don't want that to happen to you. Well, before I close, I'm very aware that so far, so far, this sermon has not given you any hope of the gospel. Never let a sermon be preached without hearing the gospel, beloved. Especially from the books in the Old Testament. The reality is, guys, the Old Covenant, which is what Judah is operating on, the Old Covenant was dead on arrival. It was known to the Lord that the Israelites would never fulfill its side of the covenant. You can see that in those final lines in that covenantal book of the Torah. Remember, we thought about that last week from Deuteronomy, the final lines. It was already known that they were going to fail. And the reason why it was known was because no one is made righteous by works of the law. No one is made righteous by good deeds, by religious works, which is how every religion on planet Earth works apart from Christianity. No way will anyone be made righteous by the works of the law. The sacrificial system at the temple was always intended to teach the Israelites that they must trust in the blood of another in order to be forgiven and brought back into the glories of God. That whole sacrificial system, that whole covenantal system was to teach them to look beyond themselves and to the Lord as Abraham did for righteousness. That's why Jesus says that the Old Testament was about him. He was the answer to not only Judah's uncleanness, beloved, he is the answer to our uncleanness. Not only that, he is the answer to our futures. I said that the big idea was that sin and idolatry takes us places we never want to go, and yet hope remains. And so you're asking, well, Nathan, where's the hope? Where's the hope? Where's the hope in the book of Kings? Well, you thought I forgot. I didn't. Take a look down, those final verses. 2 Kings 25, 27 to 30. Final words. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Morodak, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim. See, there he is. King of Judah from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments 
and every day of his life. He dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. The end. Story. So friends, if the book of Kings were a movie, the final scenes of that movie would be of a emptied out Jerusalem, of the temple torn down, of little fires burning around, of the streets lifeless, Nobody in the scene. That would have been the scene. Maybe, maybe the final scene of the movie would be of the sight of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, looking upon the city with tears streaming down his eyes, shedding tears over the mighty fall of Jerusalem. And the scene then fades to black. We think the movie is over. But then another scene rises up out of that blackness, sort of like a teaser of a sequel to come. It's not long. It's not much, but it's enough. We read here in the final scene of Kings, we have the king of Judah released from prison, his having received new clothes, not prison clothes. And he's got a place at the table of the Babylonian king. Guys, this is almost exactly identical to the story of Joseph in Genesis. Almost exactly the same. A story every reader of the book of Kings would have known of a man in Joseph who was the son of Jacob, a son of the covenant, who was exiled from the land, imprisoned and seemingly forgotten, only to be lifted up to the table of the king of Egypt, where eventually that Joseph would rise to prominence in the nation of Egypt, giving refuge later to Jacob and the 11 other sons, and eventually giving rise to redemption. And it all started with a man in exile, sitting in prison, the foreign king's table. The prophet Jeremiah knew about this very same hope of promise that was going to rise out of the ashes as he himself wrote about it in Jeremiah 33 verses 14 to 16. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Friends, the God-inspired author of Kings knew that while Israel wasn't faithful to the covenant, he knew that God would be. On the backside of this judgment that we're reading about would come one to fulfill his promise to Abraham, to fulfill his promise to David. And it is with that that we turn the page of Kings And we turn over to the page of Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, where we read the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David. He came. Jehoiakim had a son who had a son who had a son who was Jesus. God was faithful to his promise to David. When it looked like all was lost, God was going to bring about his faithful promise to have a king in the line of David that would rule far greater than David ever did. And this king, again, was greater than all the other kings, not only because he did what was right in the eyes of God, but because he was God in the flesh. Only God, beloved, could do what was needed to be done. Have you not learned that by now? No amount of appeal to your own good works can do it. Jerusalem had everything. 
They had the law. They had the temple. They had the presence of God. They had prophets. It was none of it was enough. And so God had to send his own son, God in the flesh, to fulfill the law on our behalf, to pay the ransom note for our sin. This is why Jeremiah wrote of that branch of David that the Lord is our righteousness because he knew that we could never be. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preached a sermon after Christ had ascended and sent the Spirit, explaining this promise of God to David. The now emboldened Peter, now Christ having been crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended, preaches Spirit-filled amidst that throng of Israelites. Hundreds of years after the events of Kings, he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is still with us today. In other words, David's still dead. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he, David, foresaw and spoke about what? The resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not send into heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, the Jesus whom you crucified. You understand? The apostles understood that Jesus was the answer to all of those promises to David, that all those other kings failed at. He came. And how is it we know that he was the answer? Because he died for sin, he was buried for sin, he was raised for sin, and he ascended, as it says here, at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus Christ was, we reminded, exiled himself outside the city of Jerusalem on a cross at Golgotha. He, Jesus, took the fires of judgment for all of us that repent and believe. He took those fires that fell upon Jerusalem that we read about here for all of us. The judgment, Jesus took it on his own back for those that repent and believe. Jesus was buried. Jesus was rose. And 40 days later, he ascended and now reigns on the throne of David at the right hand of God Almighty. And so now, beloved, look to Jesus. The answer to the promise of David the one of whom the author of Kings knew was coming. He is your hope. He is your reward. He is your king. And he, beloved, is your future because he has taken all of your uncleanness away. Church family, that we would remember what he has done. We would remember what he is doing to make us whole. And that we would remember what he is doing to get us on course, to get us home in the future to heaven. But until then, beloved, may we not follow idols as Israel did. For they take us places we never want to go. And did may we consider Christ and our future with him. That we may walk in cleanness and look forward to a kingdom that is so wonderfully alluring that it is almost unbelievable. And yet it isn't. It's as real and as beautiful as those cherry blossoms and those warm blue skies that come this time every year. And yes, beloved, we may need to endure a few more winters. But soon enough, we exiles will be back home in Jerusalem. It's coming. It's coming. Don't forget that. He's ruling. The king has come and he will come again. And we are sitting in exile now. But beloved, you hope in him. We hope in him and we'll be home. We'll be glad that it gave our all to our good and glorious king, the one that took all of our sin away and now pleads it on our behalf in the greatest throne room of all in heaven itself.
soon enough we'll be there with you. Oh God, we weep for the foolishness of the kings of old. Even now, the kings of today. And God, we, we weep even for our own decisions that are so much like theirs. But oh, the joy in considering that you were the one that was faithful to the covenant. You had to be. Christ has come, the son of David. He has conquered all of our uncleanness. And he has secured for us a future, not because of our obedience, but because of his. And so may we give ourselves as citizens of the kingdom of God here on the earth. May we point forward to a future with him and invite others to do the same. But until then, God, may we please not give ourselves to idols so that we might not wind up like Judas. But instead, may we wind up crossing those Jordan rivers and coming in to the heavenly Jerusalem, our happy home. We love you, Jesus. You're our king. May we live as though that's true. Help us, because we are weak. We thank you that you are strong. Amen.